Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 230. We'll conclude the book of Nehemiah with a brief summary of chapters 12 and 13, and follow with some thoughts about Shabbat, the law, and enforcement. Nehemiah has repopulated Jerusalem through lottery, and chapter 12 enumerates the Kohanim, the priests, the Levites, who renew their work in the temple. And when the wall is dedicated in a public ceremony, each has its own special role in the celebration. Quote, to bring them to Jerusalem to make a dedication and a rejoicing with thanksgiving processions and songs, cymbals, lyres, and lutes. The Kohanim purified and near offered and the VIPs processed along the ramparts of the wall. These two processions are led by Ezra and Nehemiah, respectively, and culminate at the temple for the biggest party the city had seen in decades. Quote, For God had given them a great rejoicing, and the women and the children rejoiced as well, and the rejoicing of Jerusalem could be heard from afar. Chapter 12 concludes with a list of bureaucratic appointments, men charged with administrating the treasuries of the donations coming into the temple, as well as the smooth functioning of the near offering service and the Levite accompaniment. Chapter 13 tells of another public Torah reading on that festive day, enjoining the people that, quote, no Ammonite or Moabite should come into God's assembly for all time, for they had not welcomed the Israelites with bread and with water and had hired against them Bilam to curse them, but God turned the curse into blessing. And so, according to the text, quote, when they heard the teaching, they separated all the mixed multitude from Israel. Nehemiah is summoned back to the imperial capital in the 32nd year of the reign of Artaxerxes, and when he comes back to Jerusalem, he confronts all the shenanigans that unfolded in his absence. Apparently, Tovia took up residence in the temple complex. The people were lax in giving ma'aser or tithing to the temple, and with the dramatic decrease in income, the Levites abandoned Jerusalem. Folks, we're also not keeping Shabbat. The market was open for business on the day of rest, despite the public ban. Quote, in those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing stacks of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, and figs, and all sorts of loads, and bringing them to Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I castigated them on the day for selling provisions. And the Tyrians who lived there were bringing fish and all sorts of wares and selling them on the Sabbath to the Judahites in Jerusalem. Jews also reneged on their commitment to endogamous marriage. Quote, in those days too, I saw that Jews had settled in their homes, Ashdodite, Ammonite, and Moabite women, and their children, half were speaking Ashdodite, and the language of every people, and did not know how to speak Judahite. Well, Nehemiah set to fixing these issues right away and one by one. First, he drives Tovia out of the temple. He puts community officials on blast for not enforcing the tithe collection. Quote, why has the house of God been abandoned? And I gathered them and stood with them in their stations. Then Nehemiah sends out his boys to close the gates and prevent anyone from coming in or going out until the end of Shabbat on Saturday night. The peddlers 
barred from entry are forced to sleep outside the gate. But after two Friday nights facing down the elements, they give up and leave Nehemiah's city alone. And finally, Nehemiah calls out the intermarried, quote, I rebuked them and cursed them and flogged them and tore their hair and made them swear by God that you shall not give your daughters to their sons and shall not take of their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, offend in these matters? And among many nations, there was no king like him. Beloved by God he was, and God made him king over all Israel. Even him did the foreign wives lead to offend. And to you shall we listen, to do this great evil, to betray our God, to settle foreign women in your homes? And so, with all the problems solved, Nehemiah wraps his eponymous book, with this last accomplishment, quote, I purified them of all foreignness and set up watches for the priests and for the Levites, each man at his task, and for the offering of wood at set times and for the first fruits. Recall it for me, O oh my God, for good. Shabbat in Israel is an interesting stretch of time. Depending on where you are, Shabbat is weekend, restaurants and bars and clubs on Friday night, perhaps the beach on Saturday late morning, or some light shopping in a strip mall box store located in a far-flung industrial park outside of Tel Aviv, but only if you have your own car, because for large swaths of Israel, there is no public transportation between sundown Friday and sundown Saturday. And in other places, it's Shabbat as in a siren to mark the moment for the candlelighting on Erev Shabbat, and then the silencing of traffic, the closing of neighborhood streets, synagogue services, and kids playing in the streets, and then more quiet. And then, with Havdalah, after spotting three stars in the sky, on Saturday night, the 21st century returns with its accompanying hum of cars and buses. Having lived in Jerusalem for many years myself, I was always intrigued by the forays of Haredi youth to the frontiers of their neighborhoods along Barilan Street to shout Shabbos and throw rocks at passing cars. Generally, such weekend hijinks bespoke calmer geopolitical times in Israel as these Haredim generally did not act out when police forces were needed elsewhere to tend to matters of national security. And the police handled these protests oftentimes with mild amusement and some restraint. So perhaps for this reason, they were somewhat welcome, a sign of more peaceful times. But I was taken by the double irony of their gesture. Double irony, single, an ironic gesture. Clearly it was Shabbos. Why else would these Shababnikim be so incensed and upset by the driver's flagrant desecration of the day of rest. Did they think that all the sinning drivers forgot themselves? And upon hearing the shouts, Shabbos, they just immediately pull their cars over in sheepish contrition? But isn't rock throwing a violation of Shabbat law? And then, as they used to say in Israel, the Asimon dropped. The, the, the protesters, the mostly young men and boys, clambering on police barricades to get a better shot at traffic, they weren't yelling Shabbos to remind the drivers which day it was. They were yelling Shabbos to remind themselves. Safely and nestled in their neighborhoods, with gates preventing vehicular traffic until, let's say, Shabbat, Saturday night, the Haredi live in a Shabbat world, one in which halakha and its interpreters 
reign without question. In a sense, their experience of Shabbat and that of the rabbis who lived millennia before them are virtually identical. Then, modernity, with its combustion engines, secularism, and more outrageous desecrations, you know, then it comes along and it pierces the Shabbat quiet. Worse yet, nothing seems to happen to modernity and its practitioners. They just carry on with impunity. Is there no one to bring them to heal? Does no one understand that today is Shabbos? And the thing is, in the Haredi sphere, Shabbat observance is both a public and private matter. Just as Shabbat is observed in the many thousands of homes within Haredi neighborhoods, so too it is in their public sphere. It is as if the Shabbat flows from the home into the streets. One could almost argue that in this Jewish world, the public sphere should reflect the private sphere. Shabbat is observed in the home, but it also has a public dimension. There is no difference between civil and religious law in the halachic worldview. No difference between what is commanded and what is legal. But as the rock throwing indicates, there is a conflict between the Haredi conception of public space and how public spaces are conceived in Israel as a purported liberal democracy. On the one hand, the public space is regarded as belonging to everyone. It is ostensibly neutral. Uh, it is a f- no home team, no visitors. It's open to use by all citizens within reason. As a citizen, I have freedom of movement in public space. Depending on my skin color, I am mostly guaranteed not to be harassed by police as I use that public space I cannot, say, blast music wherever I want, whenever I want, but if, say, I'm in a public park and I get permission from city authorities, I can play cello in my local and weekly Baroque performance of Vivaldi's Sonata in G minor. I can also sit in that same park on a bench and consume a hot dog, but, for example, I couldn't consume a beer on that same bench as I might get intoxicated and make it awkward for other people to use the park too. Where this notion of neutral public spaces becomes problematic is when capital wants to use public space for the purpose of buying and selling. Billboards and particularly street-level bus stop ads become platforms for consumerism, and what sells best most often is sex, which profoundly offends the Haredi community and arguably feminists and results in the frequent torching of said street-level bus stops by unidentified members of the former. This is an existential conflict in Jewish society because it speaks to the very definition of a Jewish state, and more specifically, a Jewish democratic state. And it has the potential of pitting an unstoppable force, Haredi activism, against an immovable object, capitalism. Could the Haredim actually bend capital to its collective will and force it out of the public sphere entirely, or at least in the Haredi areas? And could Shabbatifying the public sphere be the tip of that spear? Some days it seems possible, and some days it seems that this war of attrition will schlep on interminably. Now, before we consider Nehemiah's Shabbat struggles in light of the present day and quote Kohelet about there being nothing new under the sun, Nehemiah's Shabbat problem then was the inverse of Jerusalem's challenge now. The driving force behind Nehemiah's actions in earlier chapters and definitely here in the concluding ones is the pledge, the amana, that the people committed to in a public ceremony. The people swore 
that they would follow the commandments of the Torah, which was read to them in a public ceremony. And as expansive as rabbinic interpretation has been around what specifically is permitted and prohibited on Shabbat, the Torah is nonetheless pretty explicit about a ban on work and commerce. Nehemiah is preoccupied with holding the people to their word on this matter because, as any prophet, latter, or former will tell you, failure to keep the commandments usually has a bad outcome, and the people, although they didn't experience it themselves, acknowledge that the previous commonwealth most likely failed because the people, and especially the leadership, didn't follow God's commandments. So where does Nehemiah begin in enforcing Torah law? Does he send his boys into people's homes to make sure they're not lighting fires or drawing water on Shabbat? No, such an effort would be impossible and intrusive. He sends them instead to the city gates to disrupt those that would engage in commerce. None shall pass. He cannot compel the private sphere, but he can literally gatekeep the public one. He shuts down the markets and locks the gates so no one from outside, literally and figuratively, can disrupt the public keeping of Shabbat. After two Fridays of sleeping outdoors, the peddlers and hawkers withdraw, quiet returns, and Shabbat, at least in public, is kept. And with the public space secured, he hopes the quiet will spread so that, like in the Haredi world, Shabbat observance will be both a public and private matter. But instead of Shabbat flowing from the home into the streets, it will hopefully flow from the streets into the home. What kind of impact such a move had at the time is unknown, as the book ends without an accounting. But as Moshe Sokolo pointed out in the 929 page on this chapter, If the apocryphal first book of Maccabees chapter 2 provides any meaningful evidence, it seems that the Jewish community did embrace this move beyond Jerusalem's walls. In the times of the uprising against the Seleucids in the 2nd century BCE, Jews, even when attacked, refused to fight on Shabbat because of Shabbat law and died in the hundreds. Only when confronted by the Maccabees themselves did the people reconsider, quote, if we all act as our brothers have and refuse to defend our lives and beliefs, we will shortly be destroyed. They decided on that day, whosoever will attack us on Shabbat, we will fight back. We will not die like our brothers in the caves. Sokolo points out that the people eventually understood that the Torah, like democracy, was not a suicide pact. Keeping Shabbat and its laws, all Torah laws, are meant to enhance life, not shorten it. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Tell a friend about TanakhCast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to TanakhCast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently, it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning vibe this podcast, and it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast at Patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for Episode 231, when we begin the final books of the Tanakh, First Chronicles, Chapters 1 through 3.